love it. Congratulations. It's been really weird. Um, <laughs> I haven't done any driving, I think, since <laughs> Christmas. Oh like, God. it's really crazy. But I am COVID free. I'm not contagious. All yeah, is yeah. well in the <laughs> Greenwood house. I just feel like I'm on a ticking time bomb. I can't <laughs> believe I didn't get it. I know. I know. <laughs> Domino effect. It's going to hit you. And honestly, it would have been so much easier if I just had, because then if like we both had it, we could have just recorded and been fine. <laughs> Um, yeah, I sent Allie a gif of someone like dodging people in a hospital. <laughs> I was like, this is me. It, it, it's, it is wild. So many people are sick. No, yeah. no one has employees. No. <laughs> We're just talking about how the grocery store shelves are bare and no one can work. And it just, it feels very... Uh, apocalyptic. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Sister said the library is like a ghost town. Oh my gosh. No I'm employees, sure. no people. <laughs> Does she love it though? Is um, she like, oh, thank goodness. Probably Nobody's secretly. Here. No psych. I think she gets bored when it's that empty. When it's that empty. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that. Everybody loves a bit of free time, but that much free time. Uh, like, <laughs> it is again, all these things reminiscent of the beginning of the pandemic where you're like, Ooh, don't have to work. Amazing. And they're like, okay, this isn't funny anymore. <laughs> I cannot play Monopoly again. Please don't make me beg for my job back. <laughs> Somebody take my children. <laughs> what do you think? I'm going to keep them in my house where I live. <laughs> but we're not here to talk about any of that. No, that's terrifying. <laughs> Uh, we're here to talk about history with Katie and Allie. This is the podcast where we talk about famous women in history. And we talk about good women, bad women, fictional women, and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are drinking the entire time. And we are not <laughs> historians. Far from it, in fact. Definitely not. No, we <laughs> are amateur historians, professional drinkers, um, lunatic people the next morning yeah. when we're hungover. Over on it's, a Friday morning. I have, I like sometimes am panting under my mask while I'm teaching at school. <laughs> I'm so hungover. I'm like, yeah. Yes. So if we stumble, if we misstep, please know it is because we are not only bad at research, but we are also drinking. And we're garbage people. <laughs> yeah. So if you have any fun historical corrections for us please send them our way we are not opposed to being told that you know this person's birthday is wrong or that battle never happened Ugh. or whatever kind of crazy things we say but we love people <laughs> who listen to us and even use our podcast we had yes. both hashtag history and the queen's podcast mention us this week in sources whoop, whoop. <laughs> Can you believe it? Katie? I cannot. Last <laughs> of the moon for you. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, <laughs> you're busy. Yeah. If you live around here, you might be shuffling snow off of your car. Or you could be swabbing your nose. Or you could be swabbing your nose. <laughs> you're doing lots of things. But one thing you can't do, that's for sure, is stop what you're doing. Look up what these women look like on your phone. Never. So, what we're going to do is we're going to describe what they look like. We're going to get a little physical, physical. One week off sounds so good. Yeah. That um, was tight. That was pretty good. <laughs> so, Allie, this is mystery date season, so I don't know who you're doing. 
Can you describe her? My person, you're definitely going to guess. Oh, okay. I think. Okay. Uh, this person has been referred to as the original flapper and or the high priestess of the jazz era. She has blonde-ish hair uh, cut into a bob, parted to the side and slightly curled. She wore loose-fitting dresses with long necklaces and sometimes a small hat. She almost always had a deadpan stare and a slight grin. Um, and is exactly what you would picture in your head if you were trying to get yourself ready for a 1920s party in New York. Uh, and the history chicks actually described her as the original manic pixie dream girl. I love this. You're doing Zelda Fitzgerald. <laughs> I am. And it was weird when I was deciding to do this because we did um, a short segment at a birthday party for hashtag history. Yeah. But there was a limited audience and mm -hmm. we had less than 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a lot of story to put in 10 minutes. <laughs> so I was like, I really want to do her on our actual show. Yes. And I was excited when I was researching. I found out a lot of stuff I didn't know. I love this. So, oh, Zelda. Zelda. Classic. <laughs> okay. okay. What are you doing and what does she look like? I'm going to be honest. You're not going to know who this is Perfect. because I had no idea. Uh -huh. um, but she is an American woman of Japanese descent. She is around five feet tall. She has kind of a round squarish face, but with a strong jawline and her chin kind of comes down to a point. She has dark black hair that is often pinned up in some way at the top, kind of poofed up with the bottom, either down in curls, um, you know, kind of shoulder length and like 1940s or 50s style um, or put into two braids. But her most striking feature is her smile. She tends to smile with her mouth, mouth closed and in kind of twist to the side as if she has some kind of secret. This is Eva Tagore Diakino. No idea who that is. You are going to be blown away. I can't <laughs> I, wait. I was like, I can't believe I haven't heard of this woman. She has a wild story. Oh, well, these are two wild women then. Yes. It's, okay. I'm really excited. But since we have a lot to talk about. Oh, so much. What are we drinking <laughs> for we, Zelda? We are drinking a drink called the Quintessential Flapper. Love it. And she's known to like to drink either gin and orange juice or gin and lemonade mixed together Ooh. and then sprinkle sugar on top. <gasps> so this is is equal parts gin and orange juice. The rim is sugared both in coupe glasses and then a wedge of orange with the skin peeled off and I dipped that in sugar Ooh. so that the sugar would be on the orange in the drink. So sweet. Cheers. Mmm. Very orangey. Lots of sugar. <laughs> yeah. Not tart at all, though, which no, is it's nice. Not. It's mm -hmm. a, the gin gives it, like, a deep flavor. Yeah. But I like that there is still, like, a ton of gin in it. So it's not, like, it's actually not syrupy like um, like a screwdriver or something. Yeah, and it you know does Or, like, um, um, not like a mimosa either. Yeah. It's not, like, sickeningly Yeah. Sweet. No, this is delightful. Mm. Very clean. Mm. Love that. So, Katie... What do you know about Zelda Fitzgerald? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I know that she was married to F. Scott Fitzgerald. I know that she was kind of a wild party girl. She's very dramatic. People were like, she's crazy. And like, it's kind of a debate whether she was a good kind of crazy, a bad kind of crazy, or both. <laughs> both. <laughs> um, yeah, I know that she was also, though, a very talented person who kept having her talents kind of pushed aside mm -hmm. uh, i know that she wrote a lot like a lot of the things 
that are in F. Scott Fitzgerald's books are like straight from her mouth because mm-hmm. she was just fucking cool. Um, and uh, yeah, I, yeah, there's, a, there's like a lot that I know about her and then there's a lot that I gets muddled in my brain, you For know? Sure. So, but yeah, I know that she was a writer and a dancer and an artist and her paintings are gorgeous. They're so beautiful. And yeah, she was just like a talented fucking woman who was almost like in a weird way, exactly right for her time, but still eons beyond it. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to tell you Zelda's story. Okay. It's long. It has (laughs) several avenues. Mm -hmm. I'm going to speed through certain parts and slow down at other parts just because there's so much to know about her. Mm -hmm. And, And she had such a short life, which makes all this so much more tragic. Yeah. So, uh, as far as sources, the History Chicks did a great, like, two-hour episode on her. And they never do that. They usually break them into multi-parts. So, that was big. And then I did read parts of two biographies about her. Because most of the stuff online is, like you said, like, that list of things. But there's not a lot of detail. So, one is just called Zelda by Nancy Milford. And the other one is called Zelda Fitzgerald, the tragic, maliciously... Oh, sorry. <laughs> Meticulously <laughs> researched. If it was maliciously researched, that's <laughs> fucked up. Researched biography of the Jazz Ages High Priestess, and that's by Sally Klein. Mm. So, Zelda Sayer was born July 24th, 1900, in Montgomery, Alabama. I love when people are born in 1900 because then Ugh. you can calculate their age. Absolutely the story. perfect. She was the youngest of six children. So, she's the baby. Um, but only five of those children survived. So she had three surviving older sisters and one surviving older brother. And she was the youngest by six years. So she's like, a oopsie. Like, oh, wow. you know, like yeah. after we had all these kids, here's another one. Uh, her mom's name was Minnie and she, I know. So <sighs> cute. So Minnie cute. And Zelda. Exactly. That should be like an animated kids series. It should be. <laughs> Just not with these people. <laughs> <laughs> so... She actually named her daughter Zelda after a character in two little known stories. And actually in both stories, the Zelda character was what we wouldn't call now, but was a gypsy like okay. in the book. So it was kind of weird for somebody in that era to name their daughter after a character that had like questionable right. morals. Yeah. Um, so Zelda is often called a very spoiled child. You'll see that on every website. Yeah. She was a spoiled child. I really want to challenge that narrative. Mm -hmm. It says that her mom doted upon her, but what we know is that her mom had tried to be an actress when she was young and then got married and it didn't quite work out and this, that, and the other. So she had a lot of time to spend at home. Yeah. So by the time she got to her youngest two children, her Zelda's older brother and Zelda, she spent time with her kids. And back then that was considered That's pretty rare. doting on your child. <laughs> so it's kind of weird because there's no records of Zelda being snotty or bratty or impolite yeah. or like crying when she didn't get things. In fact, most records about her childhood say that she was inclusive and she brought other kids in Aww. and shared everything she had. Mm-hmm. But because her mom stayed home and like sewed her fancy dresses, she's like... <laughs> considered a spoiled brat yeah which now did she grow up to be a spoiled entitled brat maybe a little bit yeah (laughs) but like i just the idea of her being spoiled just kind of throws me a little yeah 
So her father, Anthony, was a justice on the Alabama Supreme Court. And I'm going to say Alabama a lot in this. So get ready, guys. Um, And he was one of Alabama's leading judges. He was a really strict man, but was out working a lot. So the mom was really the one whose personality like sunk into Zelda. Yeah. He was actually behind a lot of the bills in Alabama that disenfranchised black voters for a lot of years. So not a great legacy on this guy. Um, The family is definitely old America. They had emigrated or immigrated to Long Island, but then before the Civil War had moved to the South. Okay. So by the time she's born, she's got a lot of prominent members in like southern government not only her dad but her uncle was a six-time u.s senator which term limits please her grandfather on one side wrote and edited for a newspaper her grandfather on the other side was a senator for kentucky so like these are just like big men yeah she's like a classic what you think southern of Belle. southern bell yes yeah. exactly and born in 1900 so yeah. she's supposed to be a victorian southern yeah. bell uh they were wealthy but they're not loaded They're always kind of on the fringe of nice neighborhoods, and her dad was on the board of public schools, so he, like, refused to send her to fancy private schools. I honestly think they didn't have enough money, but he was like, no, if I'm on the board of the public schools, you're going to public school. Like, it just makes sense. Um, And also, they had a large house with some workers that... um, existed there but they didn't have like housemaids so the wife and kids did chores Mm -hmm. they had to learn how to do things around the house interesting yeah zelda was an extremely active child she took dance lessons and enjoyed the outdoors she loved being the center of attention especially on stage under the lights um when she was doing dance recitals uh but when her mom sent her to this public school for the first time at six years old, Zelda came home that day and said, I'm not going back to that prison. <laughs> it was like, you know, a really strict school that was like, sit up straight and mind your P's and Q's and blah, blah, blah. And that was not Zelda. Mm-hmm. So she didn't have to go back till she was seven. Um, she didn't wear shoes which i know you hate Hate and in the south it was like you're gonna get bitten by a snake or a gator if you don't wear shoes so people were confused about that (laughs) um but bingo she would read whatever she wanted Mm -hmm. from her dad's library all the girls (laughs) in their dad's libraries she was allowed to read whatever but she especially loved alice in wonderland which she actually sat down and rewrote by hand as a child oh my scribed it katie (gasps) she scribed alice in wonderland that is a real dedication to that book (laughs) i don't understand it no that's so interesting it is because you you really have to love you have to love the way something's worded to want to rewrite it. Yeah. And I think that leans into her being a writer later on. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's 1914. It's at the onset. She's a teenager. It's at the onset of World War One. She's at high school. She's really smart but super uninterested in school. Mm -hmm. The reason we know she's smart is because she maintained a high B average, but never went to class. (laughs) (laughs) She 
she cut class all the oh, time. Oh my gosh, she's such a Jess Mariano. <laughs> <laughs> that had high bees. Um, and I would imagine though, too, at this time, they didn't really push girls academically. Mm-hmm. So she was probably bored. Why go to class if they're yeah. not pushing you and you're smart? Yeah, I think that about so many people because I, I had never, I didn't know that that was a thing until you started teaching and you were like, yeah, they have to kind of send kids that are smarter to other classes because they get bored and like then they make trouble yeah, exactly <laughs> it's like i don't want you making trouble in here go learn yeah. more <laughs> get away um and i don't know she she kept dancing as like an extracurricular activity all through high school and she became a relatively good ballerina like as far as we know she's a pretty good dancer mm-hmm. she had a super active social life but never an elegant like um outing you know she wasn't like a debutante okay like that wasn't her thing Mm -hmm. she was a smoker she was a drinker (laughs) she spent a lot of time with guys but the narrative here is that she didn't have a group of girlfriends that's not true Mm -hmm. she did have a group of girlfriends and like that they were really close and buddy buddy she would drink Cokes with aspirin in them to try to get high, <laughs> which I toyed with making our cocktail just a Coke that with aspirin. That would be so funny. <laughs> but I was like, no, I really don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to drink an aspirin. Um, she would go on motorcycle rides. <gasps> there was this like famous place where people would park their cars and kiss in, <sighs> near where she lived. And she was famous for being there. Um, I was so mad that like, did we have that no, spot? I don't, we don't feel like a, we did. It's this house. Look at yeah. the <laughs> <laughs> I can see the domino sugar Come sign. Park your cars and kiss at my house. Please. <laughs> <laughs> don't. Um, she would jump from really high ledges and to swim in rivers. Like she just had all the fun. And in fact, <sighs> she... At like one of the town dances, taped some mistletoe to her butt to be like, kiss my ass. <laughs> I'm obsessed with her. Which is pretty cute. <gasps> um, she was the ringleader for the social scene, and she's like an Instagram influencer before it was a thing. Because like newspapers were reporting on what she was doing in high school. That's insane. She's the it girl in Montgomery, Alabama. I also, I kind of love that people try to paint her as like, you know, a girl that like, you know, just like doesn't have female friends. Uh Because I think it's easy to paint like cool girls as like, I don't like other girls, you know? But it's like, I feel like she's like, I'm just here for a good time, okay? I'm just having fun. (laughs) Yeah, and I think they get it from a couple of these narratives where like, some girls were like, oh, there's a community dance and if I showed up and Zelda was there, I may as well just leave. Like, But they didn't mean they disliked Zelda. They meant like every boy in the place is going to be gunning for a spot with Zelda. Yeah, Everybody has that pretty friend where you're like, why am I even here? Exactly. (laughs) Have you met me? Whatever. (laughs) So she, it, like, one of the things the newspaper reported is that she loved to swim naked, which also is not true, but she did buy a nude color, really tight bathing suit to <laughs> swim in so that people would think she was swimming naked. So I think that's the newspaper story she wanted. So I'm going to, I'm going to allow it. Um, and I also think swimming's interesting in the twenties because what we know is that women couldn't swim. Yeah. Because of true. their large clothes. So this is like the first time that like. This is a sport that I can do. Yeah. So I liked that for her. She loved being in the limelight and definitely craved attention, but she's the first girl of the no press is bad press. (laughs) Um, Because she loved when people loved her and she loved when people despised her. Um, And like rumors 
were big for her and she just wanted people to see her yeah and she liked to be seen like by herself which ends up towards the end of her life not being a thing which is really sad that is really sad she didn't have a proper coming out ceremony, but there was a town dance performance where she performed the solo and then a community dance afterwards where apparently she couldn't get through 30 seconds of a dance without another boy cutting in. <laughs> kind of cute. Now, she did all this and got away with it because of her father's good reputation. Yeah. He was her safety net. This is like the definition of, you know, wealth privilege. Yeah. Um, she's like the, the like um, Ivy League college boys that like can get away with rape because their dads are lawyers yeah it's like you know my dad's the judge in this a supreme court alabama judge what are you gonna do to me yeah you can't touch me so it's nice (laughs) nice for her (laughs) good for her (laughs) under her high school graduation photo in fact it said why should a life be work when we all can borrow let's think only of today and not worry about tomorrow (laughs) what Zelda. Yeah, Zelda. Zelda. Easy for you to say, girl. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> not all of us can not worry about tomorrow. <laughs> but she was brash and vivacious and energetic. Um, we do have reason to believe, sadly, though, that she was sexually assaulted by two of the town's golden boys at some point in high school, but... Oh. Because they were the golden boys of town, as I described a couple seconds ago, she couldn't turn them in. The only reason we believe this is a lot of her fiction is what I like to call autobiographical fiction, (laughs) where she pretty much based everything on herself. And in one of the stories, she said, for many years after that, she didn't want to live, but it was better to keep going. So that's a quote directly from one of her books, and it just seems so true. Again, we don't know for sure, but it's possible. Yeah. Well, and also, it's um, kind of the flip turn of the society that she's in. It's like, she can get away with everything, and so can other people, too. It's a double-edged sword. And if she was to turn people in, Zelda is the prime target of, weren't you asking for it? Yeah, exactly. You know, because of the way that she acts, and that's just Uh, not fair for her. No, it's totally not fair. It's just so interesting that she is a part of conversations that we still have today. Yeah. You know, like these things are unfortunately timeless. Right. And it's what a hundred years later now. Yeah. So it's crazy. Zelda met F. Scott Fitzgerald in 1918 when he volunteered for the army. He actually volunteered to be in World War One and he was stationed in a camp in Montgomery. Zelda and her friends made this little like vaudeville style dance troupe to entertain the troops called the Jelly Beans. And their first encounter was at one of these like dances, which he later fictionalizes in The Great Gatsby Mm. when Jay meets Daisy. I'm going to mention F. Scott a lot in this <laughs> narrative because they are just so interlinked. But everything I say about him is not in chronological order. Yeah. Like, I'm going to talk about The Great Gatsby, but he didn't write that till way later. Yeah. So it mm-hmm. just is what it is because this isn't his story. So fuck him. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I also want to point out that, like, biographies about Zelda are really sympathetic towards Zelda, mm-hmm. and biographies about F. Scott are really sympathetic toward him. 
Yeah. I'm definitely taking the Zelda side yeah. and saying he's a dick, but I also <laughs> know that he is a genius writer. Yeah. I, for the things he actually wrote. Yeah. <laughs> I can appreciate his talent and hate him as a human. Exactly. So, there's that. <laughs> um, so at the time when she met F Scott, he put his charm on and she's like, okay whatever (laughs) and then he's flabbergasted that his charm didn't work on her because at this point boys in the military were flying planes over her house and doing like tricks (laughs) and a plane crashed on her street katie oh my god (laughs) a military plane crashed on her street because he was trying to do tricks in front of her house it's unbelievable <laughs> what would your dad say if that was you my dad would flip the fuck out yeah i don't even know i don't even want to know <laughs> it's crazy oh, so that never happened for me no so. me neither <laughs> nobody, nobody's doing maybe kick flips yeah <laughs> so f scott is from the north and he went to princeton and that's like what zelda wants you know yeah. like a northern boy so even though she's like playing it cool like she's kind of in yeah zelda is taken by him and the thing about zelda and f scott is that they both thought really highly of themselves <laughs> so for them to find another person that was just as like self-important yeah <laughs> was very interesting <laughs> and it could either be perfect or terrible and this went terribly it's so funny because i was just saying last night that you gave me some really fantastic advice early on in life i don't even know when Ooh. but you were like you know you should be with someone who like you both equally feel like you're the lucky one mm. you know and i feel like they were like that person's so, so lucky, lucky to be with me <laughs> <laughs> like they entirely different views yeah which is and i guess we'll learn why that doesn't quite work it (laughs) goes down in flames literally (laughs) literally in flames that's in poor taste but it's fine okay so scott begins to like try and get in touch with her daily um he always talked about his plans to be famous he would mail her chapters of his books that he was writing because he's kind of going back to new york and like in the military so he's kind of all over the place at this time he's not famous um but he is writing his first novel this side of paradise here's the first reason that i claim that he could not have been famous without her he completely rewrote his female character in this side of paradise after meeting zelda rewrote it entirely so rosalind is literally zelda in fact he wrote in a letter to her that the heroine resembles her in more ways than four (laughs) what a specific number (laughs) like so so much it is zelda zelda was more than just a muse though He took sections of her diary and her letters, effectively plagiarizing his girlfriend's words at this time. She was known for writing turns of phrase. She had a very keen poetic way of writing where she would use dashes instead of commas. Mm -hmm. Um, And... In the future, he even plagiarized some of her exact words into his books. He even took her diary... And showed it to a friend, and they were thinking about publishing it with the title, The Diary of a Popular Girl. (laughs) So he really saw her as an asset, like a ticket to fame. 
Zelda, though, would not be courted by only one man, which drove F. Scott crazy. <laughs> crazy. Um, he went out with her with extreme vigor because she would flaunt her other relationships in his face. So they had kind of like a first engagement where like he gave her his mom's ring, but she didn't wear it. She just kind of left it at the house. And then when he's away in New York, she meets this guy. This guy gives her like his pin, which is kind of like a letter jacket. Mm -hmm. And then she kind of gets home and feels guilty. And it's like, I'm engaged. So she's going to mail the guy back the pin. But what she does i think on purpose is mail f scott mm-hmm. the pin and mail him this other boy her apology letter to f. Scott. she totally did it on purpose you cannot tell me otherwise no zelda's too smart for that yeah yeah she's totally playing both of them to see who's gonna go after her like more mm-hmm. uh this infuriated him <laughs> and he said i would this trick this Red flags, girl. <laughs> I wouldn't care if she died, but I couldn't stand it if she married someone else. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Why would you say that? Why would you knowingly be engaged to someone who says they wouldn't care if you die? I hate that. <laughs> what? That's such a crazy thing to say. If anybody ever said that to me, like even a person I hate, I would be like, you better fucking care if I die. That's because here's the thing is both that he's so focused on himself that like, again, this is exactly what he's saying to her. He goes, (laughs) I actually don't care about you. I care about me. And like, if you're with another guy, you're not with me. (laughs) So like, (laughs) exactly. He's crazy. (laughs) It's crazy. So he definitely wanted Zelda as a trophy wife to prove his worth. She's like a ticket. And to her, he's a ticket too, out of Montgomery. Because wait, her her friend, who's the famous like Tadilda, Tallulah? Tallulah Bankhead? Yes. Mm-hmm. That was one of Zelda's best friends. Mm-hmm. from, And she was already off in Hollywood making yeah. a name for herself. So Zelda's like, let me get to New York. Yeah. You know? So I, I think there was a little bit of competition there in her head. Like, oh, what yeah. am I doing? Yeah. Um, So their relationship is halted. He's in the North. He might be being sent to Europe, which would have been great for Zelda. Maybe she would have lived longer um, because there's no way she would have waited for him while he was overseas. But then the armistice is signed. The war is over and their relationship can commence. By December, they're inseparable. He described their relationship at this point as sexually reckless, which I'm (laughs) sure means they were having sex outside of marriage. Yeah, right. Um, But there's also a pregnancy scare at some point before they're married, and I think he reportedly mailed her an abortion pill, which I didn't know that was a thing back then, but apparently there were lots of different brands of it, but it um, it wasn't pregnancy. It was like a... Okay. Just a scare. Okay. I imagine it's kind of a holdover from like, I know in the late 1800s, there were a lot of people who made a lot of money selling crazy medications that would help people, women miscarry. Like, you know, yeah. like abortion pills. But I don't know. I'm, I would love to actually do an episode about that because I would love to know what they actually were. And what they were made of and how <laughs> yeah, exactly. dangerous, how dangerous like, they were. What else who did they test on? these on? I, I, that's crazy. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> um, so by February, 
Um, he had entirely moved himself to New York. He still wrote her all the time, but friends and family are really wary of this relationship because they're like, you two are vibing on the same energy and this is going to come <laughs> crashing down in an avalanche. Yeah. Like you've got to stop. In fact, her mother used to cut clippings out of the newspaper about failed writers and give them to Zelda. <laughs> so passive aggressive. No, just like talk <sighs> to your girl. <sighs> um, but when his first novel was accepted to publication, he apparently to the editor was like, this is great because I have a lot depending on this, including a girl. <laughs> Cause she was not going to marry him unless he got a name for himself. Um, so he returns to Montgomery with this great news. She agrees to marry him. Once the book is published, she finally starts wearing the ring. Um, and he in turn promises to bring her to New York. Uh, but this level of social reckless behavior is totally unsustainable and gets them into like some pretty bitter arguments in their private lives. Mm -hmm. Cause they would go out and be like the party couple, but then, like, at home, they would be, like, screaming at each other like psycho people. Ugh. So it was, like, not very good. Um, and they got married very quickly. Actually, on producer's birthday, April 3rd, 1920. Really? Yeah. But it was weird because she's a southern icon. You would imagine she's going to have a southern belle wedding. Huge wedding. Everybody in town's going to come. Everybody in Montgomery is like, Zelda's engaged. Mm -hmm. Let's do it. No. This is a small wedding. Parents aren't invited. Wow. Her sisters are invited, but they don't even wait to start the ceremony for them to get there. <laughs> Her sisters hate him forever yeah. because of this it's like he he kind of like took this big wedding day from her because it's like yeah. it wasn't going to be about him and i don't know what part she played in this but she seemed like the type who would like a big wedding yeah they didn't even have a reception they just left the church afterwards went to a hotel and they left their family in the church and didn't even tell them where to go or what to do oh, oh. wow that's yeah, very that's strange and very possessive strange. of him yeah well and also it's funny too because like it's not surprising to me that it was you know kind of a fun spontaneous wedding but also it's surprising that there was literally no fanfare Nothing. you know you would think that she would at least be like oh well, we're still gonna party you know everybody come to the bar and we'll hang out like it kind of seems like yeah she had, didn't have much say in this yeah I don't know and I did, th I do think I heard somewhere she wore like a suit or something, which is pretty fucking <laughs> That's cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I think her and F Scott would show up to parties sometimes together wearing the same outfit. Like she would wear <laughs> pants with him <laughs> and like she would get kicked out because she was a woman wearing That's so funny. pants. I don't know. She was, she knew what she was doing. Mm -hmm. So just for a little thing about how quickly they became celebrities in New York, their behavior was nuts. They <laughs> were ordered to leave multiple hotels because of drunkenness. They jumped in fountains in Union Square. They rode on top of taxis. They ran around a revolving door for a half an hour one time. Oh, my gosh. Stopping all people from Are they Buddy the Elf? I think. What? I think. Um, a biographer about them said it looked as if they their youthfulness stepped out into the sun. It's like okay. they were being wild. Their social lives were fueled by alcohol, alcohol, and alcohol. They would drink 
so much that sometimes by night when they got to the party, they would just take a nap at the party. Oh, my like God. Like upstairs because they had been dr- day drinking all day. They seem like the type of couple that only likes each other when they're drunk, mm. which is such a or red when flag. Each- when they're writing letters. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. And it's like, I, I don't know. I don't like who you actually are, but I love when you're wasted. <laughs> and... F. Scott not only only wants to be drunk around her, Mm -hmm. like you're saying, but he also is starting to get really mad at her. He says she's so vivacious that when she's around me, I can't write. But when she's out dancing with her friends, I also can't write because I'm pissed about what she might be doing. And it's like, you married a party girl. Well, and it's also, I hate when writers... And other anybody blames other people for like them not being able to do with the thing that they're doing. Right. You know, <laughs> it's like, no, this isn't a Zelda problem. This is a you problem. Okay, buddy. Well, guess what he did? What? I can't even imagine. She keeps going out and like being with her friends because he's busy writing and she's a yeah. woman in the 20s. So she can't really have a great job. Yeah. So um, he cheated on her to quote, set her straight. <laughs> she was like, or what? I don't understand. <laughs> uh, what does that mean to set her straight what is she doing she's dancing with her friends i don't understand that also when does cheating on someone fix the relationship zero times zero, <laughs> zero times, times. <sighs> so they had started drinking a lot in college and then in their 20s but it just keeps getting bigger and bigger instead of dwindling down like the rest yeah. of us do um one time we actually know that back in alabama her dad ends up chasing Zelda. Zelda's dad is chasing her around the table with like a table knife because he's just so infuriated with her because he came home to his house and F Scott's there plastered and she has a black eye. (gasps) And she says, I ran into a door and we're like, well, is that really what happened? Yeah. Because it doesn't sound like it's what happened. And her family is like, red flag, red flag, red flag. Get yeah. away from this guy. Ugh. So she also could have been drunk and tripped into a door. But we do have visual proof that he punched her later on. Somebody yeah. saw it. So not this specific time, but yeah, patterns. In February of 1921, less than a year after they got married, Zelda found out that she's pregnant. And... They're going to have a baby. So instead of staying in New York or going to her mother in Alabama, he takes her to Minnesota. Why? What's in Minnesota? That's where he's from. Oh, But okay. she doesn't know anybody. And she's alone. And she's a social butterfly and has no one to talk to. And she's pregnant. And he keeps calling her fat. Oh, my God. He keeps saying, you're gaining so much weight. You're gaining so much weight. She's pregnant, mind you. Um, but she, of course, in Zelda fashion, did not take pregnancy like a normal woman. She wouldn't refused to hide her belly. She showed off her curves. She didn't stay inside. She still went out in bathing suits and went swimming, which I don't know when the hell you swim in Minnesota because it's cold as fuck. Really? She went out dancing, showing off all her pregnant curves. She was like, fuck you. Like, I'm going to do this anyway. Mm. So in October, they birthed their first daughter. 
and Frances Scott Fitzgerald named her Frances Scotty Fitzgerald. <laughs> what a lunatic. Oh, my God. My daughter's name is Scotty, which is cute. It is really and, cute. And, I mean, he's also Frances Scott Key Fitzgerald. Oh, my God. <laughs> what if the bridge in Maryland was actually uh, named after him? Scott Fitzgerald Bridge. Oh, um, my gosh. I do love the name Scotty for a girl. I think it's very cute. It's very cute. That must have been Zelda's bargain. Yeah. <laughs> As she emerged from the anesthesia, apparently she said a whole bunch of things like, oh, I'm drunk. Mark Twain. Isn't she smart? I have the hiccups. Oh, she's so cute. What a beautiful fool. (sighs) Whatever. She said a lot of things. None of that was right. But they, these exact words went into Daisy's mouth in The Great Gatsby. He had literally brought a pen and paper with him because this is something as a writer he'd never experienced. He'd never been in a labor delivery room. I mean, for the 20s. I mean, at least he was in there. Most men were so good smoking That's cigars true. somewhere else. But he's in there with a pen and paper running like, down. Come home when he's one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So um, Zelda never became domestic or even showed interest in becoming domestic. Mm-hmm. And people translate this to meaning that she was a bad mom. She is not a bad mom. Um, they employed a nurse. They had a house cleaner. They had a laundress. Um, she just didn't really want to be womanly. It yeah. wasn't her thing. And this is one thing that I think is absolutely hysterical. Harper Brothers asked her to contribute her favorite recipe to a book of recipes. <laughs> and she says, see if there's any bacon. And if there is, ask the cook which pan to fry it in. Then ask if there are any eggs. And if so, try and persuade the cook to poach them too. <laughs> She doesn't fucking care. I love that, though, because, yeah. it, I, you know, there are a lot of resources for a woman like Zelda now who's like, okay, I had the baby. I'm still not feeling this motherly thing that society is telling me that I'm supposed to be feeling. Right. Like... <laughs> You know, and for a woman in that time, it was like, there are no resources for me. There isn't someone being like, oh, I went through the same exact thing. I know what you're talking about. Right. It's just like, you're wrong. (laughs) She's like, great. (laughs) Cool. Thanks. We'll love it. Where's the bacon? (laughs) Ah, Where's the cook? (laughs) Somebody get the frying pan. But she, despite not being domestic and not super into the pregnancy or mother Mm -hmm. thing, she did love Scotty. Oh, I'm sure she did. Yeah. Scotty actually defines her younger years before she understood how psycho her parents were (laughs) as as golden years. Zelda read to her every night. Zelda sewed her dresses just like her mom did for her. Um, Zelda would throw her these epic birthday parties because Zelda's good at parties. You know what I mean? She made her paper dolls, physically made her paper dolls to play with. I almost wonder if she was kind of a better mom and it turned than a lot of other people because she was like yeah i may not be like a traditional mother but she goes but this kid is my friend right and i feel like she treated scotty as a friend and not as like a daughter right. you know what i'm she saying loves her. why discipline a kid if you have somebody working for you that'll do it right yeah <laughs> if you have a nurse slash nanny like just hang with your kid and when they're being bad send them yeah. away <laughs> like it just she really did love her and even when they're apart 
she would write home to Zelda these really, mm. or Zelda would write home to Scotty these really cute letters like, I'm in France and there's so much food here that I feel like they're going to have to wheel my belly away on a wheelbarrow. Like, <laughs> it's so adorable. Yeah. And like, that's not the side of her we ever see no. publicly portrayed, which I'm sad about. Yeah. Um, so in 1922, she did become pregnant again. Some writers have said that F. Scott's diaries include entries referencing Zelda and her abortion, but there is no such entry that we know of. We don't know her actual thoughts on pregnancy, but in one of his books, the female character talks to another woman about what best to do about this problem. But in publishing, they made him take that out and yeah. switch it to, I'm worried about my figure. Oh, so okay. we're not going to talk about the problem of you unwanted know, pregnancies. Right. We're going to talk about women. how women gain weight after yeah. they have babies, which both, come on. <sighs> so the New York Tribune then approaches Zelda for a cheeky review of F. Scott's most recent work. They go, will you review his book in our paper? She goes, sure. <laughs> of course oh I will. God. Now, again, I think that she is a major factor in his success. Her celebrity status was used to promote his books, but she is making fun of his book in the newspaper oh my with God. his last name and then says, well, you know, Plagiarism starts in the home. <gasps> Calling him out. Oh, my God. Publicly, Katie. That's incredible. And, <laughs> you know, he apparently at first took it pretty funny, but, like, it ends – like, he thought it was cute at first. He was yeah. like, okay, it's promoting my books, whatever. No press is bad press. Like, fine. But it ends up being, like, lasting resentment between them, this plagiarism thing. But because of it, she starts getting gigs with other magazines writing. So she wrote one piece during this time called Eulogy on the Flapper, in which she wrote an essay defending her own code of ethics. And she also got to, like, define what is a flapper versus what's a poser flapper, Ooh, which is okay. fun. And... There were some deep moments, too, that were like, you're a woman, and when you get married, you're going to be put in a box, so have fun now. Like, mm. there were some really deep things that are coming in these yeah. articles. So she continues selling her short stories. Now, we do know that a lot of things that she wrote were published under F. Scott's name. However, we do think many of these were mutual they knew he was the famous writer and they would make more money. Right. It's more they, strategic. Right. It was strategic. So they kind of agreed to it. And yeah. now it has been spliced out. We know who wrote what yeah. at this point. Um, so this doesn't seem to have been done against her will. This was like a marital choice that they wanted to make more money, which they needed to because they were spending it all on fucking alcohol. <laughs> During Prohibition, you had to pay bootleggers. Oh, like that's right. I keep forgetting that they're in the Prohibition era. <laughs> they are, how are they you getting? You never know from them, them riding on top of taxi cabs. But <laughs> how are they getting all this money? I all this bootlegging alcohol. I'm so confused. Um, as soon as they achieved some success, they started overspending their means. Apparently, F. Scott is drinking a bottle of gin at breakfast 
Oh my God. Every day during Prohibition. Um, And then they wrote this play together that totally flops and they found themselves in some serious, serious debt. So they go, you know what would be like crazy and fun? Like instead of F. Scott writing these constant little things, short stories he doesn't want to write, we could like just go to Paris where we don't have to pay a bootlegger to get alcohol. So they moved to Paris. Just for the alcohol. Seems like it. Wow. (laughs) So Zelda, F. Scott, and Scotty go to Paris. She comes to go to Paris. And um, he is writing Great Gatsby in Paris. Okay. He... he's insane so he's like i'm gonna hunker down and i'm gonna absorb myself in the writing and threat zelda no bedroom stuff (laughs) until i'm done don't you dare have sex with me until i'm finished she's like okay (laughs) big threat (laughs) calm down um so he's writing the great gatsby obviously daisy zelda we know that yeah um and he she becomes infatuated with this french pilot now we know that he has already cheated on her as far as we know she has not yet but she does she spends her days swimming with this guy at the beach they go out dancing at night after six weeks with this guy from what we can tell zelda asks f scott for a divorce whoa and he locks her in the house um, until this guy leaves France with the oh military. Oh, my God. When they found him, like, later, I think one of the biographers was like, yeah, he was like, oh, I just didn't know what happened to her. She just stopped coming to the beach, and I was kind of bummed. Meanwhile, she is, like, locked inside, unable to get a divorce. God. I, and, I mean... <sighs> It also, it puts her in an impossible situation. Yeah. Because now it's kind of like, I think she's thinking like, wow, so I really, I'm not going to just be able to walk away from this. Ever. And also, if I tell everybody what happened right away, you know, maybe he doesn't get any more books published and then we really don't have any money. Like, there's a lot of layers here that are really complicated. She's dealing with herself, with her, who is an alcohol a functioning alcoholic her husband who's barely a functioning alcoholic a daughter she's trying to raise and being unhappy in a marriage and not having a job and she wants a job so like there's so many things happening the two of them though we know both had an intense need for drama so sometimes they would make up the drama like it was really really weird how they would keep up appearances in front of friends and then make up these stories of things that happened at parties that didn't actually happen just so mm. they could fight about them. <laughs> it was, it was really, really it's weird. Very strange. So he finishes the great gas. Maybe it's because they were drunk and remembering different things. It yeah, had to be. be some of that. Yeah. He finishes the great Gatsby and they try to celebrate by going to Rome and Capri, but they're both just so unhappy and unhealthy. And this is the first time Zelda begins painting. Mm. She's kind of reaching here, but they're back in Paris. F Scott meets Hemingway and the two become great friends and Zelda hates him. She hates 
Hemingway with a passion. <laughs> That's so funny. Why? <laughs> she just didn't vibe with him. Like didn't feel about him. She actually calls him bogus. Ah! She says he's <laughs> bogus. He's phony as a rubber check. Oh. And then she insinuates that his domineering macho personality is a posture for his sexuality. <sighs> okay. Wow. So she's very strongly words for Hemingway. against Hemingway. Uh, but he doesn't like her either. Oh, perfect. <laughs> he is like, she's crazy. She's distracting you from your writing. But F. Scott is constantly making them go on double dates, like with Hemingway <laughs> and his wife. And she's like, I fucking hate them. Oh, my God. And then he keeps making Zelda retell the story of her cheating on him with this French pilot to Hemingway and his wife over and over again. And then makes up the ending that this French pilot killed himself. <gasps> None of that oh happened. Oh, my God. They're insane, Katie. Yeah. That didn't happen. Like, literally at all. <laughs> and then Zelda told F. Scott that the reason that their sex life had declined so much is because him and Hemingway were having a gay affair. Now, she may have said that, but somebody else leaked that to the press. Yeah. And then he paid a whole bunch of sex workers to prove that he was not gay you pulled a samantha uh-huh uh-huh okay and then of course she's like you're cheating on me again and he's oh like you just cheated God. on me with a french guy and she's like yeah because you cheated on me with like this is an insane story so <sighs> zelda of course finds the condoms from this sex work shenanigans becomes super jealous and bitter their relationship is a lot about bitter jealousy even to the point where Zelda later threw herself down a flight of stairs at a party because F. Scott was talking to Isadora Duncan and ignoring her. <laughs> Classic move. Right. <sighs> Go throw yourself down a set of marble oh stairs. That always gets them. Oh, God. So F. Scott's friends at parties were split. Some of them hate her and are like, you need to get away from this psycho woman. Some of them are like, she is so fucking fun. Ah! <laughs> like, she, you, dude, you totally lucked out with this girl. She is a blast. Um, it bears repeating that F. Scott drew heavily on his wife's personality. So even though she's crazy and he kind of hates it, that's all he writes about in yeah. his female characters. And the conflict comes from he's spending all this time writing about how fun she is. And then she's bored while he's writing. Because she has nothing to do. <laughs> so then they fight. So. <laughs> Zelda becomes obsessed with creating her own hobby. So she goes back to dance lessons. She's 27 years old. She's only 27? Which is ancient for ballet. Yeah. Ancient. Um, and, I mean... She gets a Russian choreographer and starts training like eight to ten hours a day. Oh, my God. And she's getting like pretty good. She's obsessed with it. Scotty would come dance with her sometimes, which oh. is super cute to think about. Yeah. Um, but this leads to a lot of physical and mental exhaustion. Mm -hmm. And as far as we know, like Zelda didn't think she was going to be a famous ballerina. Yeah. Like she's being trained by a Russian choreographer. Like Russian ballet is like really fucking hard. What? But, like, F. Scott paints it as, like, she got obsessed and I had to tell her it wasn't going to happen. But I feel like she's just looking for something that's her own because he 
is obviously not letting writing be hers. He keeps taking it. Yeah. And you're right. I don't, I'm like Zelda had danced before. So I, she knows what the dance world is like. She's not an idiot. No, she's not. And it's not like going into something and be like, okay, great. So I'm just going to be a professional ballerina now. She's like, no, I know that's out of the question. She goes, I just want something that's mine. I don't know. That's yeah. really upsetting to me that he is such a dick about it. It's, ex- <laughs> it's exercise. She's yeah. exercising. It's like people who train for marathons. Yeah. You yeah. go run for a couple hours, but like, yeah. And it's like, no one trains for a marathon, especially like later in life and thinks like, I'm going to fucking win this thing. Yeah, it's yeah. like, <laughs> the it's goal just is just me. to do it and it's finish for, for you. Yeah. Mm. So she actually even got good enough by 1929 that she was invited to a ballet school in Naples, <gasps> but she turned it down. Cause again, it's not what she was going for. Yeah. Um, and, and it's just like, she was just dancing for her mm-hmm. now might, she have had these like fantasies, you know, at night when you're like interviewing in the shower, like, yes, yeah. I'm the prima ballerina in black. <laughs> like, of course she did. Everybody yeah. does that. But I don't think that she's as crazy obsessed as everybody thought she was. I think she was working out cause she had nothing else to do. Yeah. And that's a healthy way to like replace alcohol. I don't know. <laughs> like to work yeah. out. So she actually in this time sold four of her essays and F Scott was in a writing drought. So she's paying for her own dance lessons too. She's mm. not even like leeching off her husband. Um, people just only believe that he is writing these things, even though he's face down drunk all yeah. the time, which makes no sense to me. And even when they're at parties and she would talk to some of his colleagues, about writing he would put her in a taxi and send her home because he didn't want her to talk about it so we're in europe f scott says she needs to leave me alone i haven't written in 21 days send her to an insane asylum (gasps) 21 days oh my god send her to a sanitarium she sanatorium sanatorium she goes to this prestigious hospital in europe they see no mental diagnosis they say the patient has had a long-standing stressful relationship, which is causing her anxiety. That's it. Scott is not happy with this diagnosis, so he takes her to another psychiatric hospital, and they diagnose her as schizophrenic. Nowadays, we would consider what she had manic depression or maybe bipolar, but there's no way to know. And the doctor actually was later interviewed in like the 1960s. And he said, I absolutely gave that girl the wrong diagnosis. Oh my God. Um, they are doing electric shock therapy. They're giving patients malaria to fever the crazy out of them. They were giving her laxatives and sedatives and enough insulin to make her go into comas in this hospital. Oh my God. Um, her daughter is with her parents. Um, she would write really sweet, coherent letters to Scotty. Um, but whenever F. Scott was coming to visit, she would break out in severe eczema right before he got there. And people are like, he's kind of the reason that she's going nuts. Yeah. He even brought one of his affairs to visit her at the hospital one time. He's so... Uh, th- there's a lot of cruelty in what he does. Yeah. You know, there's... And I think that's why I am... Uh, often more on Zelda's side yeah. because I don't think she has a cruel streak on her. She may like lash out, 
But he does things uh, purposefully. Yeah. To like really hurt her He's feelings. He's targeting her feelings for and, sure. And even when she had that affair with the pilot, it seems to me like it was like, oh no, I actually like just so like, let's do this. Let's get a divorce. I want to be with somebody else. Whereas he had an affair to literally spite her. Yeah, exactly. Like, During one of his visits, a doctor said, you know, you should really see somebody or one of us about your alcoholism. And he said, it's not your place to correct me. <laughs> it's but your place to correct my wife. That's it. Correct <laughs> her and make her better. She's sending him letters, like a begging to get out of there. She's still taking dance lessons while she's in there. And Scott F. Scott, like contacts her dance teacher and is like, send her a letter that she needs to quit and that this is useless. And instead her teacher sends her a letter of encouragement. Oh, <laughs> that's like, great. Fuck you. <laughs> so finally, after a year and a half, she's released and they say she's not crazy. She just has unreasonable ambition, which is true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she's feeling an inferiority to her husband. Also true. Yeah. Good diagnosis. And the couple returned to Alabama. This is because her father's dying. Amid the time her father's dying, F. Scott says, I'm going to move to Hollywood and leaves oh Zelda God. and Scotty and her dying father. So by 1932, of course, she's back in a psychiatric clinic. Uh, because her husband walked out while her dad was dying. Yeah. While Zelda was being treated at Johns Hopkins, burr, 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 she had a burst of creativity. And over the next six weeks, she wrote an entire novel. But when Scott read the book, he was furious because it's semi-autobiographical about their marriage. And he was pissed because he had planned to write a book about their marriage. So he <laughs> made her cut all the pieces that he wanted. And then she had to publish it without those pieces. He said, you don't have permission to write about me. Even though he's literally been only writing about her. That's why he's a famous writer. That's his entire career. <sighs> so she said... I don't know what you'd like me to do. And he said, I want you to do what I say, as you've <laughs> always known. What I say. Just do what I say, Zelda. <laughs> like, oh, my God. <laughs> to every parent talking to their child. Like, <laughs> because I said so. Because I said so. <laughs> my God. Why? So even though it's the, uh, the Great Depression, a publisher does agree to publish her book. And the parallels between the fictional couple and the real-life couple are blatantly obvious. Yeah. But... It did get to the heart of how Zelda felt, which is she wanted respect for her own accomplishments. Mm -hmm. To her dismay, though, it doesn't sell a lot of copies because she's not the famous writer. Um, especially since F. Scott was raving about her plagiarism in the press, of course, which crushes her spirits and she would never publish a novel again. She would write, but she would never publish. And it's like, yo, dude, you're in Hollywood. Like, shut your mouth. You're not even, like, yeah. with her while she... Now, he is paying for all of this medical treatment, mm -hmm. unfounded medical treatment that she didn't necessarily need. Right. Now, mental health is great, but don't send your wife to a sanatorium for no reason. Yeah. So Zelda spent the remainder of her life in various states of mental distress. Some... Of the paintings she created over the previous years are now exhibited, um, and they're they're just beautiful. They went on an exhibit in New York in the 30s, but the New Yorker said these are paintings by the almost mythical Zelda and made no comment about the art. Mm. They didn't even bring up what was it good, was it bad? 
She had no idea. I hate that because it's almost like I wish she would have had the option to be like send her paintings out under like, you know, like a pseudonym or like a writer's name or whatever it is, you know, and be like, I want to know. Are they good? Are they good? Yeah. Like, no, don't make this about me. Make it about the art. Yeah. And I mean, she did beautiful cityscapes. She does amazing Alice in Wonderland paintings, which we know she loves Alice in Wonderland. Mm -hmm. And there's this one. Um, she had two lampshades in her house that actually F Scott actually liked her art. He was not critical of her painting, which is weird. He would like buy her paint and shit, but there's one lampshade that's like a carousel that still exists. Like she painted it like a carousel and it's really beautiful. You can look it up online. Apparently there were two in their house. I don't know what was on the other one. I forgot. Um, her family is begging him to release her from doctors, release her, send her to us. We'll take care of her. This is her mother. And he goes pretty much, your mom doesn't care about you. And also, I paid for you, and I'm not giving you back. That's not verbatim, but it's pretty much what he says. And then she gets really embarrassed because he publishes his book about their marriage. And the woman is so close to Zelda that everybody knows it's her. But then he added fictional things to it. Like that her father molested her, which isn't true. That happens in the book, but people thought because it seems like Zelda, it must be Zelda. And she's just so embarrassed. And also her dad just died. So like, that's terrible. Um, So she remained in the hospital and Scott's in Hollywood making $1,000 a week for MGM because of course they're going to hire scum. Um, He began a serious affair with a Hollywood movie columnist that he would be with this woman until his death. Um, and despite that affair and the bitter burnouts and like all these crazy things and the fact that he doesn't like see, they don't see each other for like the last long portion of their life. It's only letters. He still blamed Zelda for every failure. When Scotty gets kicked out of boarding school, he blames her. Where was he though? When Scotty got into Vassar, right? Not saying, Oh, Zelda, good job parenting. Um, He says that Zelda ruined him and that she exhausted all of his talents and cheated him of his dreams. That's what he says about Zelda. Um, It's just, it's really hard because the last time they did see each other, they had, they took a trip to Cuba and like F Scott got beat up for trying to like break up a cockfight or something. It was just like a crazy trip to Cuba. I don't know why. Weird. (laughs) Very weird. But that's the last time they saw each other before they both died respectively um she made a lot of personal progress when he was gone for years after being admitted she was she was released you know she gets released um but her friends are gone her money's gone her like young fun spunky is gone scott's increasingly bitter and his his friend hemingway is really successful which doesn't make scott feel any better and then scott dies of a heart attack in 1940 in the house of his affair s um and he's buried in rockville maryland <laughs> that's so crazy next to her to they're me. both in rockville i know it is nuts um zelda did not attend his funeral which a lot of people were really off put about they're like i why are you not going? But I just think it was going to trigger her. Every time he came to see her, she got eczema. She had anxiety about seeing this like abusive man, which by the way, I did bring up earlier that somebody did see her get punched in the face and it was her sister. Saw her get punched in the face by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Like that is on the record. 
Well, it's also something that like you would nowadays never judge an abused woman for not going to her husband's funeral. Like, you know, and it's just, yeah. I mean, things have changed, you know, in that regard, I think for the better, unfortunately it still happens, but like, I think there is a lot more care taken for the victims and Zelda, I really truly believe was a victim. She was of all of these circumstances um, of the way that society treated women of the way that, you know, husbands treated wives of like expectations is really hard. Um, So because she was in and out of all these hospitals, like she would actually start to do some really crazy things because her brain's kind of getting foggy because of all Mm -hmm. the treatments they're giving her. So Scotty actually didn't even invite her mom to her wedding because she was like, she just might do something crazy. So she's checking in and out of hospitals. They're doing convulsion therapy. Oh my God. They did this one thing where they would pop all the blood vessels in her (gasps) eyes and she couldn't see for a couple days. She started having hallucinations and religious breakdowns. There were suicide attempts. Um, And I imagine if you weren't insane going in, you're going to be insane coming out because of what they're doing. So in March 1948, she's 48 years old, almost 50. Doctors consider her stable enough to go home. But she doesn't trust herself, so she chooses to stay for a few more months. She had been living a quiet, peaceful life in the hospital, painting and gardening, and she's happy. Um, She had also just found out that Scotty had two children, and she wrote to Scotty that she couldn't wait to come and see her again and meet her grandchildren. But later that same March, a fire broke out in the hospital kitchen of Zelda's hospital. She was on the top floor, locked in her room for the night, And the fire moved up the dumbwaiter shaft, spreading to every floor. Mm. The fire escapes were wooden, so they burned as well. But it wouldn't matter because most of the windows were barred. Nine women, including Zelda, died. (sighs) She was identified by her dental records and her famous red slippers that she liked to wear. And I can't imagine her fear in those end moments. I think about being in the top floor of a hospital. The smoke has already reached you. You know you're locked in. And, like, I just can't imagine. No. It's not a quick way to go. No. Um, um, Unless you take your own life in the process, which is also terrifying. Yeah. Like, this is not what anybody would want for a person. F. Scott and Zelda were originally buried in Rockville Union Cemetery, but Scotty actually got them moved to a Catholic cemetery, which they originally, the Catholics, were like, keep them far away from here. (laughs) Scotty said of her parents, I, and this is not a direct quote, um, I think uncrazy people get themselves out of crazy situations. I don't think my mom led my dad to drinking, and I don't think my dad's drinking led to my mom's condition. Yeah. So... At the time of their deaths, F. Scott thought of himself as a failure. And for the world, Zelda's passing brought barely nothing. In the years following their deaths, though, people began to take notice. And they wrote biographies and magazines and articles about alcoholism and mental health Mm -hmm. and relationships that are toxic. People wrote plays and films and included both of them. Sometimes sympathetic to her, sometimes to Scott. But... As renderings of their lives continued, people began to highlight the pitfalls of fame at a young age, Mm. which we still see 
today. Yeah. Hashtag free Britney. Thank God she's freed. <laughs> Zelda is the inspiration for the Eagle song, Witchy Woman. She is noted as the quintessential flapper. She is embodied in the reckless personality of Daisy Buchanan, as well as F. Scott's books, where she is played by Nicole and Rosalind. Her name is immortalized in the video game Legends of Zelda, Mm -hmm. where the (laughs) co-creator said she was famous and beautiful from all accounts, and I (laughs) liked the way her name sounded, so I took the liberty of using it. Perfect. There was a wild turkey in Battery Park in New York named Zelda because (laughs) during one of her breakdowns, she disappeared and ended up there. That turkey passed away in 2014. In 2013, she had her own ice cream line named after her. Um, It definitely has cognac in it. (laughs) People say she was the 20s icon that was gone too soon, much like Marilyn was for the 60s and Diana Spencer was for the 90s. Yeah. In 1989, Zelda Fitzgerald's museum opened in Alabama, and it is the only place that some of her paintings are displayed. Unfortunately, Mm. after her death, her family burned a lot of them (gasps) because they didn't like them. No. Um, People have reevaluated her, especially in books that are published. They're now saying, like, she was a brave woman, and now that we're reading things under her name instead of F. Scott's name, we've learned so much about her. Yeah. And then, to all the happiness in the world, people are reevaluating her paintings as well, and they're talking about what an influential artist she was. Also in 1991, they published a complete set of her works, of everything she had written, not F. Scott. Mm. Many people compare them to Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath. <laughs> I did get visions while you were talking about that story. It's really rough. Yeah. So in talking of her art, they say that it represents the work of a talented visionary woman who rose above tremendous odds to create a fascinating body of work. One that inspires us to celebrate the life that might have been. Zelda was introduced into the Alabama Women's Hall of Fame. And that's Zelda's story. So great. There's just so much to it. And uh, I also, I feel like there are some parts too where like, you know, you mentioned her being brave and she totally was like, it is a very brave thing for her. People are like, okay, you're good. You can leave the hospital. And she goes, you know what? I know myself. And that's what points me towards like, she wasn't like crazy, you know, she was like, no, like I know what could happen if I, if my world gets turned upside down, she goes, every time my world got turned upside down, like things got fucked up for me. Yeah. So I'm just going to stay where I'm comfortable. Like, fortunately the fire happened, which yeah. of course that's terrible, but an awful we got tragedy. new regulations because of yeah. that. But yeah, she was like, I'm not good. Yeah. Like, I don't feel good. Like I'm going to stay. Yeah. Oh, so. and it's brave saying what makes you feel good. Yeah. Man. All right. Well, what a great story. Um, we have some new cocktails to make. Uh, this one was orange. Our next one is going to be green. It's very exciting. All right. We'll be right back. We're back. And this drink is vivacious. This is might be the most like, colorful drink like i've 
It's aggressively green. It's aggressively <laughs> green. It's unbelievable. Um, so this cocktail is called Tokyo Rose. It is a teaspoon of matcha powder, van- uh, vanilla extract, vodka, oat milk, simple syrup, um, and you shake it all together. You're trying to make kind of a boozy white Russian iced matcha latte kind of thing. <laughs> and then I topped it with rose petals, <laughs> which <laughs> look like bacon bits. They do. Oh, <gasps> it's actually pretty good. It's so good. Yeah. And you can, if you're like not super into matcha, you can always put less, but like, it is so good. It's pretty good. I love it. I'm surprised. Like I put like a teaspoon and a half of vanilla extract in here and it's actually barely coming through. It's yeah. just surprising. <laughs> vanilla extract is so potent I know. and it's not here. Wow. But it is good. And like, mm. I do love a matcha latte. So mm. this is not bad. <laughs> There are plenty of rose petals getting stuck. Yeah, in the yeah, yeah. But today. I mean, Paul Hollywood handshake to you. Mm-hmm. It's so nice. It's wow. really creamy. I like a creamy cocktail. I like it a lot. I feel like I'm almost having a coffee, but yeah. then it's like cold and green. Mm-hmm. All right. So, do you know anything about Eva Tagori? Katie Zip Zero, stingy <laughs> with Tamero. I have, I have no idea. I mean, I bet. I don't know. I bet it's one of those people where, like, if I saw a picture, I might be like, oh, I've seen that person before, but then maybe haven't. Maybe not. Maybe like, haven't. Honestly, I never even know. I don't know if she, where she spent the majority of her life. I don't know what her, you know, life purpose or her occupation, her, her activism, whatever the hell it was. I have no idea. Please Perfect. enlighten me. Okay. So I got most of this from Stuff You Missed in History class and a BBC podcast called Witness and, of course, Wikipedia. Eva Tagori was born on the 4th of July, 1916, in Los Angeles, California, to Japanese immigrant parents. Uh, her father, John Tagori, had come to the U.S. in 1899. Oh, I'm sorry, not John, June. Um, <laughs> My eyes are already spinning. Uh, June Tagori had come to the U.S. in 1899 and her mother Fumi in 1913. We don't know too much about her childhood, um, but according to some sources, she actually had a really traditional American upbringing. She and her family lived in a predominantly white neighborhood. She was raised Methodist. Her and her brother attended the local public school. They only spoke English. Um, And apparently they ate mostly like American food. Like they didn't eat a lot of Japanese food. Um, And apparently then she didn't develop a taste for it. So when she goes to Japan later, she like brought a bunch of like canned American food with her. Oh my God. (laughs) Which is so wild to think about. It's like, oh no. Such an American thing to do. I love it. I know. I love that. (laughs) love that for her she's like no thank you to like traditionally hand-rolled sushi i will have spam <laughs> thank All you I very much i know like, <laughs> um from what i can tell eva was pretty popular at school she was a girl scout she liked to go hiking with her friends she played tennis and she loved swing dancing just the typical california girl lifestyle 
1940, she graduated from the University of California, Los Angeles, with a degree in zoology. And in 1941, just when she is exploring her options for graduate study, she's thinking about going to medical school. She gets word that her aunt back in Japan is not doing well. She was an elderly woman. She had fallen ill, and she really needed a caretaker. And so... Her family kind of thinks like, oh, this will be a great opportunity for Eva, you know, like send her to Japan. She'll get to know the home country, you know, she'll be able to take care of her aunt. Like, okay, great. And Eva's like, okay, sure. Sounds like a good opportunity for me. I haven't been yet. Um, So she plans a trip to Japan. Now, at this time in America, you didn't need a passport to go abroad, just a certificate of identification. Hmm. So she gets this certificate. And she goes to Japan in the summer of 1941. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not a good time to be in Japan. No. She ah. spends the summer there. And around August or September, she contacts the State Department. Is like, okay, I'm ready to come home now. Um, so she, because she doesn't have a passport and she can't exactly, like, just travel freely, she has to kind of, like, tell them, you know, like, hey, I'm coming. So, like, this is my plan. Right. They have to approve it. Um. But since the wheels of government move a bit slowly, especially in the 40s, they don't process her re-entry application until December. And of course, we all know what happened in December of 1941. Pearl Harbor is attacked and the U.S. is suddenly at war with Japan and they refuse her application. They're like, no, you can't come back here. Like, you're probably a spy. She's a U.S. citizen. I know. She's not allowed back. And she is stuck in enemy territory. So she's like, okay, it's no problem. I'll just go to the Japanese government, explain my situation, and I will voluntarily have them detain me as a U.S. citizen to, like, prove in some way that, like, I'm not part of this. Like, she's like, please, Japanese government, like, arrest me. Like, I just want to them to know that I'm not a part of this. Oh my gosh. Okay. And we like, do, she fluently speaks Japanese. She speaks no Japanese. <laughs> Katie. I know this poor girl. And they refuse. They go, Nope, you're of Japanese descent. Like we're not detaining you. And she's like, great. So, <laughs> but they tell her, they go, but you can recant your U S citizenship and just become a citizen of Japan. And she refuses. She says, I am a fucking American born on the goddamn 4th of July. <laughs> I am not rescinding my American citizenship. California girls. Unforgettable. Uh, they did not like that. Wow. And the Japanese government then takes this rejection to mean that she's an American spy. Oh, my God. So she's they, a quadruple agent. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so she's like, I just want some spam. My God. Um, so they then start following her, keeping tabs on her. They routinely subject her and her aunt to these really awful random raids to her apartment. And Eva was, it was getting to the point where she's like, my aunt is sick already. I cannot make her go through this. So Eva makes the decision to move out of her aunt's house because she just doesn't want to subject her aunt to all this. So she moves out. She's in a foreign country to her. She doesn't speak the language. And 
Because they are suspicious of her, as we said before, she is denied a ration card. So she also does not have a way of like getting food. Oh my God. This reminds me of like when Yoko Ono's family was like walking around with a shopping cart yeah. trying to like get money yeah. and food. Awful. Except they had ration cards because they were Japanese yeah. actually. Yeah. <gasps> this is terrible. I feel so badly for her. It's so awful. And all people who deal with like oh, yeah. racial dual citizen like identity crisis. Yeah. Well, and now she's a no citizen. Like right. no country is like. like <laughs> you, you were born here but we won't take you. And it's like you have our ethnicity but we also won't take you. Exactly. Oh, it's God. very upsetting. Um. And so since she doesn't have a like any constant access to food, she becomes really ill, super malnourished, and she is hospitalized for scurvy. It's she like, gets so- scurvy. She's a pirate. No. Audrey Hepburn was like that, right? Wasn't she yes. hospitalized in the Netherlands for not having enough? Yeah, well, or because, Belgium? Uh, it, um, she Belgium. was born in yeah, but she was born in Brussels. Oh, okay. Um, but she lived in the Netherlands, mm-hmm. I believe, when all when and the she war just was didn't happening. have enough. Yeah, because like Food. nobody had like because she was in you know occupied territory. Gosh, yeah. Um, so <laughs> she was like, "All right, I have to do something." What a late note so, to take this episode on. <laughs> I know. She goes first things first. I do need to learn Japanese, so she starts taking language classes. As many as Olivia. Uh huh. <laughs> Not quite as many as Olivia. <laughs> Olivia's on a crazy Duolingo streak. Duolingo I literally don't like know how she 1, did it. One thousand one hundred thirty days. That's like eighteen years. Yeah, if you do the math, it's eighteen years actually. <laughs> <laughs> how old are you, Olivia? Uh, then she finally finds a job. She is a typist for the Domei News Agency. So she can at least make like a little bit of money to support herself. And even through all of this, she is finding ways to sneak food and clothing to POWs in local camps. Like allied troops are being captured and taken to places in Japan. And she is somehow like one of the things said she was risking death, like trying to get them like food and supplies. Meanwhile, she is literally dying of scurvy. <laughs> it's insane. I wish there's more information on that. I don't even know I what scurvy is. Me neither. But I know fruits and vegetables are the cure. And she <laughs> couldn't have them. Oh my gosh. Who's that little girl that we did? Who was, like, sneaking into prisons and breaking people out. We've done a lot of, like, yeah. people sneaking into prisons yeah. in uh, World War II era. Yeah. <laughs> so then, in 1943, she gets another job for Radio Tokyo as a typist. She earns only 150 yen per month, which is $7 <laughs> In U.S. money. And yet she still used some of her earnings to buy food for prisoners of war, uh, smuggling it in as she did before. But Radio Tokyo is an interesting place to be at this time because there are other POWs from various allied countries working at this radio station. And they have the very special job of spreading propaganda to allied soldiers via a program called Zero Hour. 
So this was a radio broadcast that was a weird combination of pop music and English-speaking broadcasters that was meant to taunt the soldiers and, like, spread lies about the status of the war and basically to demoralize the soldiers as much as possible. So these are soldiers fighting in the specific that this the is, like, the specific, the specific, <laughs> the uh, specific, the specific, ocean. the very specific yeah. ocean <laughs> of the Pacific, <laughs> specifically the pacific ocean <laughs> so they're basically like tuning in and it's like great songs from my country and you know people who speak english and then they're just being taunted and teased and oh. being told like like japan's winning the war don't forget which like sometimes wasn't true like <laughs> they're like breaking their spirit yeah like the pop music would lure them in and then they'd hear these really upsetting messages. Guys, it's B2K. And then it's yeah. like, Nazi! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> At least that was what was supposed to be happening. So the program Zero Hour was run by a prisoner of war from Australia, a man named Major Charles Cousins. They had captured him in Singapore. And since he had been a broadcaster back home in Australia before the war, they put him in charge. How come so many Australian people have words as last names? Don't know. <laughs> Don't know. <laughs> um, just thinking of Paul Onions. He helped catch a serial killer in Australia. Paul Onions. Major um, Cousins. <laughs> <laughs> But what the Japanese didn't know was that Major Cousins decided to flip this propaganda program and use it to send good messages and hope to the troops and their families. Oh, my God. As an example, Cousins went to, you know, the Japanese officials and was like, ooh, you know what would really stick it to the men is if we just read all the names of all the men that you've killed. And they're like, yeah, we love that. But really, he was reading the names so people could know what the fuck happened to their buddies and their families. Like, he was like, this is the only way to get this information to them. Right. So, Otherwise, it's their MIA. Exactly. That's terrifying. That's yeah. even worse to not know. Yeah. I think personally. Absolutely. I've never had to deal with that experience. No. So. <laughs> I don't know for sure. And then he figured it. Maybe we could use sarcasm and make the whole program more of a comedy show. And, you know, it might actually lift the spirits of the GIs. And the Japanese, you know, soldiers who were censoring the program wouldn't be able to tell because sarcasm is not easily translatable. It's like when you're trying to, like, write something sarcastic. It just doesn't sound that way. Well, it's very slangy. Yeah. Um, which is difficult. Yeah. To, to learn or to do. Yeah. Um, my um, little brother's girlfriend um, is Hispanic, and I was talking to her about, like, trying to learn Spanish mm -hmm. for to be able to speak to my students, and she was like, they don't speak in proper Spanish anyway, mm -hmm. which, like, I'm still trying to learn it just so I know general words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, like, they, you know what I mean? They speak in slang the majority yeah. of the time, yeah. so, and that's how sarcasm is slang. Yeah, it totally is. It's, like, the way you say a specific word. Yeah. Um, and when Cousins met Eva, he thought she would be perfect for, like, this mission um so he basically told her like you know i know you're on our side because i was actually in the pow camp that you had brought food to so he oh. like knew that she was like good um and he told her like she he was like since you're not military personnel like you can't be court-martialed for anything that you do on this show and uh, 
he also said, and also like, I'll back you up. Like, I know what we're doing. And he goes, also, we will never, ever make you say anything bad about the U.S. or anything that could get you in any trouble. So she said, okay. You know, also, he said, I just really like your voice. Um, <laughs> so she said, okay. And he made her a DJ on the radio program. And she took the DJ name of Orphan Anne. <laughs> Stop. Which again, DJ Orphan Which again was kind of clever because. Wait, is that they, her street name? No. <laughs> yeah, it's her street name. They, the Japanese took it as like her taunting them because she'd be like, ooh, my fellow orphans. Like, you know, being like, your parents back home don't want you anymore. Like, you're an orphan. Like, you're lost in the world. But really, she was like, this is a cultural touchstone that like they will understand. You know, it's like they're going to feel comforted by like, oh, it's Orphan Anne, like the little girl from the comics. Like, like the yes. sun will come out tomorrow. <laughs> I don't know if that song was here at this not point. Not in the She was just a comic book. No, but no, 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 no. <laughs> Certainly not. But she would get on the radio and she would announce the songs and say things like, all right, kids, now here comes Bing Crosby with Moonlight Becomes You, brought to you by your number one enemy, Orphan Anne. Don't forget, <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> and like, she would make it so absurdly comical that it would be like she's being funny but to the japanese listening they're like yeah she's saying i'm your number one enemy like i hate you (laughs) (laughs) she's wow just so good at it um and she just tried her best to make it fun and light even though the situation was absolutely dire um but she got through it because she really thought she was helping the troops you know she's like no like i'm here for them like i and meanwhile she's stuck in the she has no idea whether it's actually working she has no idea who's listening to this but she's like if i can bring some like fun and levity and some good old-fashioned american pop music to their ears right now like i am all for it um little joys in life it is um and i want to make it clear too she is just a regular DJ. She performed in comedy sketches and introduced recorded music. And in fact, her on-air speaking time was generally about two to three minutes. Like, she is not a newscaster. Like Cousin said, she is not talking about anything regarding like what's actually happening in the war, which is important to note. Another thing to note is that she was not the only female radio announcer. There were a few other women who ran um, shows on the radio program. And since many of them sounded similar, the GIs listening gave them one nickname, Tokyo Rose. So Tokyo Rose became the name for these women on the radio who were spreading Japanese propaganda. Um, and this nickname, I want to be clear, started before Eva even started working for the radio station. And she never once referred to herself by this name because how would she even know it existed? Right. It's existing among the troops and she's not with them. Correct. So all of this is going on. And by 1945, she's still on the radio, but she makes a few changes in her personal life. Um, She converts to Roman Catholicism because she wants to marry her radio co-worker, Philippe Diacchino. Italian? He is Portuguese and Japanese. (laughs) What a mix. (laughs) I know. I like that for him. You do. Um, so she marries this guy. They're both working for the radio station. Um, but then shortly after they both kind of lose their jobs because I think Radio Tokyo was getting kind of hip to that. They were 
more akin to the allied side. Mm. (laughs) But it didn't matter anyways, because soon the war was over. So like, great, we can go back to our pre-war lives. We'll be in America and everything will be fine. But shortly after Japan surrendered, Eva was still... Not, I mean, I mean making, not to mention they had two nuclear bombs dropped yeah. on them. Let's like, like we'll, we'll just Japan is that. kind of a mess. <laughs> um, Eva doesn't have any money. She made seven dollars like a week, a, a week or like a like a or year whatever, or whatever yeah. it was. It was insane. Um, so she gets approached by these two journalists, uh, reporters Harry T. Brundage of Cosmopolitan Magazine and Clark Lee of Hearst International News Service, and they offer her. $2,000, the equivalent of a year's wage in occupied Japan, for an exclusive interview with Tokyo Rose. And Eva was obviously in desperate need of money uh, if she had any hope of getting back to America. And she was also, frankly, just really excited to talk to people who she considered her fellow countrymen. She was like, yes, Americans. Oh, I've missed you. And she was so excited to share what she considered her contribution to the war effort. It was her time to show her fellow American citizens her patriotism. This is going to go wrong, isn't it? Mm -hmm. God. Because these men decided not to publish her interview. They decided instead to sell the transcript to the FBI as Tokyo Rose's confession of treason. Also, they didn't pay her the $2,000. So now she has no money and the FBI is after her. On September 5th, 1945, the FBI came to Yokohama, Japan and arrested her. She sits in jail for a year while the FBI investigates these claims. They interview her co-workers. They listen to recordings of her radio program. And they talk to the GIs who actually listened to her, who were stationed over there. And they conclude, the evidence then known did not merit prosecution. So she was released. No charges brought. There was no proof that she had done anything treasonous. So again, she's like, awesome. <laughs> Been in jail it's for a year. time. I can get back to the U.S. just in time to have my baby on American soil because as soon as she was released, she became pregnant with her first child. And she's so excited. She goes, not only am I going to be back there, but I'm going to have an American baby. She's so excited. With Philippe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she just wants to go home. But when she applies to come home, there are a few people who get wind of this and don't want her coming back to the U.S. Gossip columnist Walter Winchell, for some reason, decides that even though she has been cleared by the FBI, he just doesn't think that she should be allowed in the U.S. He's like, uh, she's a traitor. She is a traitor. No, thank you. She is the Tokyo Rose. We can't just let this awful woman come back into the U.S. and like subvert us from the inside out. And he actively lobbies against her re-entry and says that she is behind all of the Japanese propaganda that was coming out of Japan during the war. She She is a traitor to the U.S. and she hates American soldiers everywhere. How can people think that women can 
simultaneously <laughs> do nothing uh-huh. and then do and also everything. ruin America. I don't understand. And also ruin America. I don't understand it. It makes no sense. So he's writing all these terrible articles about her. And another thing that was happening was that papers started to really define the Tokyo Rose brand <laughs> that they are like they're trying to cement this idea in people's minds that wait to villainize Asian women. Yes. Oh my God. Racist <sighs> cartoons started to fill papers and they, I mean, they'd been obviously racist cartoons had been in the whole war. Oh my God. Yeah. But these ones were depicting an evil Japanese seductress who was on the hunt for poor American soldiers to seduce them and then harm them. Tokyo Rose was suddenly one woman who encompassed all of the over-sexualized negative stereotypes that have plagued Asian women for years. And now they had a real person to fully represent this racist stereotype, Eva. She was, yet again, denied entry in, into the U.S. She's stuck in Japan. Her baby is born. And to make matters worse, the child was stillborn. <gasps> so she loses the baby. Oh. And uh, so it's just becoming even worse in the U.S. And due to the disgusting work of Walter Winchell and the racist propaganda in the papers, like Americans are starting to turn against her. And because she is now being judged in the court of public opinion, people are calling for the arrest of Tokyo Rose again. And it's September 1948. She is arrested again in Japan and transported to San Francisco. Well, she got back. <laughs> yeah, she did get <laughs> back. Where she was charged by federal prosecutors with eight counts of treason for, quote, adhering to and giving aid and comfort to the imperial government of Japan during World War II. Her trial began the day after her 30th birthday on July 5th, 1949. She was defended by a team of attorneys led by Wayne Mortimer Collins, a prominent advocate of Japanese American rights at the time. And she was also helped by her old radio friend, Charles Cousins, who told the courts exactly what had been going on. He goes, no, like that wasn't our plan. Like we weren't trying to bring them down. We we're trying to boost them up in any way that we could. Like you have to listen to the tone of our voice. Like we are trying to subvert them. This is a farce. But it didn't matter how many people confirmed how she had not only helped the troops in the Pacific, but also helped POWs by bringing them food and clothing, you know, with what little she had. Because there were two men, former colleagues of Eva, who testified that they had heard her say one very damning thing on air. Kinkichi Oki and George Mitsushio said that in October 1944, they heard Miss Eva Tagori say, all of you Americans, now that all your ships are sunk, how are you going to get home? And this was seen as proof that her broadcasts were not innocent, as she claimed. She was discussing important military matters. She's discussing the placement of naval ships. Oh, like she's discussing, she's discussing real time war matters. 
And it's important to note that there are two men who heard her say this. Because fun fact, in order to be convicted of treason in the U.S., you have to have two corroborating witnesses. You can't just have one person say it. You have to have two. So they had the minimum. The jury deliberated for a very long time. And they came back as a hung jury twice. Wow. They could not make a decision. Well, I mean, at least that. That's yeah. enough people saying, like, I don't I think she don't did think it. I think she did it. And when they came back out the second time to tell the judge about their predicament, he told them, you get back in there and you come back with a verdict. And the tone was, and you know what that verdict needs to be. So she was found guilty. Wait, because tone matters? Yeah, because tone matters. <laughs> So she was found guilty. Oh, my God. And the jury foreman admitted that they felt very pressured by the judge to find her guilty, even though they really didn't think she was. And this pressure from the judge was probably coming because he had lost his son in the war when he was fighting in the Pacific against the Japanese. So he is not the most unbiased person. So conflict of interest? Mm Mm-hmm. Right. That's uh, a thing. Another fun fact. This was the most, this is like the lengthiest and most expensive trial in California up to this date. Oh my gosh. It was long and expensive. And also the judge kept reminding them about how long they had been there and how expensive it was. And he goes, you don't want to waste like taxpayer dollars to defend this like treasonous woman. It's like, actually I do. <laughs> and it's like, that's mm, like what America is. Yeah. Yeah. We defend treasonous people. That's our whole yeah. thing. So she was found guilty, but only on one count. The eighth and final count of treason, which was speaking into a microphone concerning the loss of ships. The jury was hoping that if it was just this one, the judge might give her a lighter sentence, maybe even time served, since at this point she had already served three years of jail time, waiting for investigations and trials. But of course, he did not. He gave her the maximum legal sentence for her crime. She was sentenced to pay $10,000 and she was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison. Oh my God. She was only the seventh person ever in U.S. history to be convicted of treason. Seventh? Seventh. Holy shit. (laughs) To put it in perspective. Isn't that crazy? And I bet with the- this flim flam goddamn kangaroo trial, it's unbelievable. I bet the first six were during the revolution. No, it's like her and Benedict Arnold, and that's like, it. Like, uh, whatever the South, yeah, like in the Civil War, like that's insane. Yeah. Treason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh my gosh. She was sent to the Federal Reformatory for Women in Alderson, West Virginia. Yes, the same famous prison where people <laughs> such as Billie Holiday, Squeaky From, and Martha Stewart have served time. Oh my gosh, how fun! <laughs> she spent what a legacy. I know <laughs> legacy of prison time. She spent the next six years and two months there, getting out early for good behavior. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> she was released on January twenty eighth, nineteen fifty six. And then the government tried to deport her, <laughs> which she's, she successfully lobbied against because she was like, you're literally contradicting yourself. She goes, you can't deport me. I'm a U.S. citizen, you idiot. Yeah. And I couldn't have legally been found guilty of treason <laughs> if I wasn't a U.S. citizen. So what am I? Right. Can I be here? Can I not? Am I treasonous? Am I not? Like, make up your fucking mind. 
So they couldn't deport her, but it did not stop them from basically not allowing her to live a normal life. She was banned from traveling outside of the U.S., and they basically regarded her as like a stateless person. They also banned her husband from coming into the country because he wasn't a U.S. citizen. So they basically forced her marriage to dissolve, and she never got to see her husband again. And meanwhile, (laughs) they only got married, like, right before the war ended. So, like, they They spent no time together. They spent, like, and then she was in prison for... (laughs) Three years. And then six more. And then six more. Oh, my gosh. Very, very upsetting. Um, So she ends up moving to Chicago where her father was living. He was running a successful company. So she joined him and ended up, like, also, like, taking over the business. She's, like, running this business. I think she also ran a grocery store at some point. How are you not just the whole rest of your life? She's just living a quiet life as much as possible. But she had lost a lot in those years. She had not only been, you know, seen as a traitor from American, the American perspective, but also the Japanese American community was very hurt by this. I mean, people, including, you know, Iva's own family had just been forced into internment camps in the U.S. for years on suspicion that they were doing exactly what they said Eva was doing, you know, being traitors, being spies. And they kind of felt like now you are giving them this reason to think that it was right to intern us. It's fuel for the fire. And they were like, now you're, it was kind of seen as like, you then proved them right. That like they shouldn't have trusted us and that they were right to put us in these camps. And there was just, like, a lot of bad feelings from literally anyone. It just felt like Eva didn't have anyone in her corner. Except for one person who never gave up on her. And that was her father. Eva said, he used to tell me, you are like a tiger. You never changed your stripes. You stayed American through and through. He goes, I am so proud of you. Oh, that's so sweet. (laughs) And that was the thing that bothered her the most. She was like, I can deal with the jail time, whatever, but I can't deal with the idea that people, especially American soldiers, think that I'm a traitor who hates America and hates them. She's like, that's just not me. And I hate that that is my legacy now. Right. When I thought I was doing everything I could to help them. But then in the 1970s, a reporter named Ron Yates became interested in her story. He just felt like things weren't adding up. So he went to Japan and he tracked down the two men that had provided the damning evidence in her trial. And it didn't take long for their story to fall apart. They admitted that they had lied on the stand and perjured themselves. They said the FBI and the U.S. occupation police had coached them for over two months about what they were to say on the stand and how they were supposed to keep their story straight. And they said the only reason they did it was because they had been threatened with their own treason trials if they did not cooperate. They said they felt absolutely terrible. They're like, but we're also in a bad position. And they go, we just want, you know, Eva to forgive us. We feel so bad. To which she said, I will never forgive those men for what they did to me. I don't need their, like, especially like they didn't come forward. Someone went and found them. So she's like, no, I'm not going to fucking forgive them. (laughs) Like, 
No. no. Somebody to track you down. Exactly. I love that because I hate when people are so forgiving of like their <laughs> child's murderers. They're like, I totally forgive you. It's yeah. Like, no, you fucking don't. Yeah. Liar. So, <laughs> so the story comes out in 1976 and people are shocked at the miscarriage of justice, which is like, Come on, guys. We're, we've been through this already in America. Does anybody in the FBI <laughs> fucking go to prison? Do we get Never. anybody? <laughs> anybody at all? So people are just floored that this happened, and they're so upset. So on January 19th, like the day after this airs, in 1977, President Gerald Ford pardoned Eva on his last day in office. It was about time, but it was still a little too late for Eva. Her father had died shortly before all of this, and he never saw her receive the justice that she deserved. But on January 15th, 2006, the World War II Veterans Committee awarded Eva its annual Edward J. Hurley Citizenship Award, citing her indomitable spirit, love of country, and the example of courage she has given to her fellow Americans. And this was what she had been waiting for all these years. An acknowledgement from the soldiers themselves that they did not think of her as a traitor and that they saw her as the true blue American patriot that she knew herself to be. She became very emotional during the ceremony and said, thank you. This is the most memorable day of my life. A few months later, Eva died of natural causes in a Chicago hospital on September 26, 2006, at the age of 90. She has now become a symbol of courage and what it means to be a true American. And that's the story of Eva Tagore. What the hell? I know. I was like, this story is bananas. Like, how How does that happen? I don't, I mean racism yeah was, <laughs> I, I like i racism, do misogyny you know i feel like a lot of people really are like yeah like champions internment camps but like there was so much more hate and racism going towards especially just specifically japanese americans like after the war and this is such a concrete example of it that she could be framed for the like top crime in the land you know and she didn't do it and she and it sucks too because it's such a miscarriage of justice especially when you consider the fact that the fbi had already cleared her yeah they knew she was innocent and they did it anyway and you can't tell me walter winchell wasn't fucking racist against japanese people and that's why he did that of course ridiculous of course so anyways, um, my God, let's talk about these two <laughs> together. <laughs> In a little segment we like to call just the two of us. Okay. Mm. I feel like we need to start with the fact that they grew up two all American girls. Yeah, very much. So like the Southern Belle and the California surfer girl, like, you know what I mean? It just, yeah, it, it was the. The two coasts. Yeah. <laughs> I just feel like they were very typical for their time, their era. Like, they were just, like, here to live their best lives. And I feel like they were thwarted in their missions. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not to mention, I think both of them spent a lot of time behind walls in those said countries. Yes. 
So, like, I felt like their whole story was taking place while their amazing, like, contributions were being locked in. Yes. I, I totally agree. And I feel like it's because they're both in kind of abusive relationships. You know, Zelda and Scott and Eva and the United, the United States. States. The FBI. Just this horrible thing of, like, you know... I want you to want me. And they're like, no, I'm just going to ruin your fucking life. And I just, I don't know. It's, they just are in like these really kind of messed up relationships. And it's so sad to see. It is. And it seemed to me like they both, regardless of situation, kept trying to find new avenues. Yeah. It was like, okay, I will be on the microphone for this radio. I will be center stage at this party. Yeah. But also when people tear me down, I'm going to persevere and like Mm -hmm. keep going. Yeah. Because frankly, both of them, people only listened to when it was convenient for them. I mean, I'm thinking about everyone's listening to Eva on the radio, but in her trial, no one is listening to what she has to say or what other people have to say about her. It's just like all of a sudden, it doesn't matter. Mm. And, it, you know, every, like Scott's listening to Zeldin, putting what she's literally saying into his books. But then when she's talking about her issues and what's actually going on in her fucking brain, it's like, nope, don't have time for that. It's like, you're not saying the thing that is putting you into the box that I want you to be in. So I'm not going to listen. Right. Oh, God. Uh, I like... The problem is that for their lives, they were being misconstrued. Yeah. And I I liked when you brought up the point about her legacy, Mm -hmm. because I think that's the thing that also plagued Zelda. Oh, yeah. That she knew that her legacy would never be her own, but tied Mm -hmm. in her husband's legacy. And she never got to see her legacy be her own. No. I mean, thankfully, (laughs) Eva got that in the last couple months of her life. Right. But it's not the same and it's true it's being not only misunderstood by people and the public but it's being villainized like mm. i think a lot of diehard f scott fitzgerald fans like for a really really long time were like he could have written so much more if she hadn't been holding him back um there <laughs> are people who are gonna send me hate mail for probably this episode. yeah because i mean like I said, very, that's why I said it early on. Like, yeah. He is a, he's a genius of a man, but there mm-hmm. are a lot of genius men that were fucking assholes. Yeah. And America's a great country. <laughs> America's a great country, but it's also so fucked up. And like, you can't just only pay attention to one aspect of it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know, I liked that they were both in gossip newspapers. Yes. <laughs> like, let's talk about this girl. Because like I said, during your story, people love to talk about women's power mm-hmm. unless it is in government or mm-hmm. religion or economics. They yeah. only want to talk about how women have this villainous power if it's in social, you know what I mean? Atmospheres or environments. Oh, yeah. It's well, weird. <laughs> and let's also talk about how they are also both characterized as one thing. Zelda is the quintessential flapper. Eva is Tokyo Rose and they are both so tied to these images that carry a lot of weight you know like Tokyo Rose became a symbol of racism and harm and it was taken to be this evil thing and even though like we consider the flapper like fun and cool now 
there were a lot of people who were like, flappers are immoral. They are not good. They are ruining this country. They're breaking the law. Yeah. By getting alcohol. Exactly. And they're wearing short skirts and they're dancing and they're Charlestoning and whatever. And you have suddenly two women who are unbeknownst to them almost being like, Oh, okay. So the whole image of this one thing that actually a lot of women are a part of is all on me then. Right. Great. Good to know. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I'm the symbol you're taking. Yeah. It's funny because I I, I think a lot about um, the Hunger Games book, Catching Fire, where Mm. propaganda is so important. Yeah. And I think it worked for both of them positively in the early parts of their lives where it's like, I am going to be this voice of satire on the radio. I am going to be this woman that writes cute, quippy articles in the newspaper. And then as soon as they weren't needed before, which you kind of alluded to this point already, as soon as they weren't needed, people were like, okay, we're we're done done with with you. you. Shut your mouth. And, uh, I think that there are two very crucial moments in both of their lives that are shockingly similar. Um, we have, Zelda's initial diagnosis when she was sent to the sanatorium and they're like, no, she's not crazy. She's just in an abusive relationship. Right. And we have Eva's initial FBI finding that she was not guilty. They're like, no, there's no proof of this. And you have the abusive figure in their life finding a way to get the diagnosis or the conviction that they want. And I think this is such a great point because there's a show crazy ex-girlfriend which a lot of people didn't like the name. They're like, oh, that's so mean to women. I hate mm-hmm. that. And like Rachel Bloom was like, no, it's meant to be like a satire and how the people always say like, oh yeah, my crazy ex-girlfriend. It's like, yeah, yeah but what negative behavior were you participating in right. that made her act out or like whatever? Like it's such clickbait to be like, I hate yes. that show. It's like, have you watched it though? Yeah. Right. And like, it's like, no, you're just retooling the story and you're retooling what happened until it fits your narrative. And that's what happened to both of them. Oh, yeah. And I just, I found the similarity between that just like shocking and the fact that it resulted them both, you know, them both like we kind of talked about at the beginning being in and out of a jail or a sanatorium, which is a different kind of jail at right. this point. Away. At this point, mm-hmm. like sanatoriums were not pleasant to be in. No. And it wasn't by choice. No. I don't know. I and just, uh, I think maybe the last thing is that like a shout out to decent fathers. Yeah. <laughs> because like both <laughs> of their dads did like make it towards close to the end of their lives and died pretty shortly before their daughters did. And yeah. I think it seems to me that, I mean, Zelda's dad wasn't the greatest <laughs> person. It seems like Eva's was. Yeah. Um, but either way, it's like their dads really did believe in them and were willing to be like, you aren't guilty and you shouldn't be with that man. You deserve better. Right. You deserve better than what you've been given. Thank God there was at least one person in their lives that told them that. Right. When the whole world was basically saying, you don't even deserve to be here anymore. Mm -hmm. We don't want you. Mm. Mm. My goodness. Oh, Oh, my God. Amazing. (laughs) Amazing. Talented podcasters. (laughs) Honestly. Oh, all right. Well, now that we're near the end, Allie, who would you like to toast this evening? I want to toast to women and men and non-binary people who are just surviving in yeah. toxic partnerships. Oh, God, yes. Because it is hard to get out it's of. It's so hard. Cheers, Cheers to you. Mm. I'm going to toast people who don't change their stripes. 
Sometimes changing is necessary and it's beautiful when you're evolving, but I just feel like Eva had this really strong personal strength and that was her stripe. It, you know, and I think that it's written as like, you know, oh, she's like American to the core. And it's like, yeah, she is. But like, she's American in the way that we all want to be American and like the way we want to be a Gryffindor. It's like, I want to be courageous. I want to be strong. And she was that. And she never backed down. And she never let anyone tell her that she wasn't exactly who she said she was. Mm. So cheers to her. Cheers. <laughs> mm. All right. Allie, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? Okay. <laughs> so hear me out. Okay. <laughs> Everybody knows we're in phase four of the Marvel universe right now. I thought you were going to say phase four of the lockdown. Oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus. Also that. Okay, um, I did not know there was phases to this Okay, so universe. phase four is after Endgame. Oh, okay. All of the TV shows and movies after Endgame. And there's okay. one, two, three, up to then. Okay. Okay, so the most recent movies that came out, well, Thor and Doctor Strange are coming out this year, but the most recent movies that come out are the newest Spider-Man, mm-hmm. which I'm not talking about, and then the, <laughs> the Eternals and the Ten Rings one, Shang-Chi and the Ten oh, Rings. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Which Aquafina's in oh. that, and it's great, and it's on Disney+, Plus. totally Perfect. worth it. But I'm going to talk about The Eternals. Okay. It looked good. It is. It got really negative reviews because it is kind of like Outer Space X-Men, which is also Marvel, but Marvel sold X-Men to Sony. So they've got to go deeper. I did hear something about that recently. Yeah, it was from me. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But anyway, not the point. Point is, this movie, the plot is all over the place. And like, (laughs) it's a fun movie yeah but it had people of every color Mm -hmm. they were speaking multiple languages even asl because there's person who a person who's either deaf or hard of hearing and is using asl the whole movie Mm -hmm. there is a gay kiss which i think is the first marvel on screen gay kiss it is they, they focus on a character who's played by angelina jolie which is clearly showing mental health issues throughout Mm -hmm. the movie yeah like i just thought they were like we are gonna hit home representation yeah literally in every character awesome and they're not shying away now that they've made all their money yeah like (laughs) in hawkeye and winter soldier the show they focused on racism big time Mm -hmm. because at the end of endgame um steve rogers before he dies gives his captain america shield to falcon who's Mm -hmm. a black guy Mm -hmm. and they grapple in the show with him not feeling worthy Mm. to be captain america and people not accepting him as captain america because he's black yeah and it's set like present day yeah (laughs) so i just they're doing a really nice job shung shi and the ten rings is like almost an entirely all asian cast Mm -hmm. amazingly done Eternals is a worse movie, but very, <laughs> very good representation. I'm not going to lie. I saw the trailer and I was like, what is the plot of this movie? Like, I didn't understand. <laughs> yeah, what the fuck is happening is the question I asked myself multiple times. But it was very fun to watch. Cool. So it's one of those movies. You don't go into it for the deep storytelling. Okay. You just go in. Go for the fun. For the fun. I All love right. that. What do you have? It's free on Disney+. Plus. So if you have um, Disney+, Plus, it's out. I'm going to recommend a not fun show, but an interesting show. So it's a show called Why the Last Man. 
Uh-huh. It is based off of a comic book series mm. that uh, Fiance read. Love comic books. Uh-huh. And so I would probably recommend both because he said the comic book series is really fucking good. Okay. Um, so basically the plot of this comic book turned TV show is that there is a virus or something. We don't really know what the hell it is. Okay. But all of the men in the world die suddenly, like in the same like moment, except for one. Ooh. His name is Yurig. So why the last man? Um, and also like why chromosomes? What the hell mm-hmm. ever? Um, great connections. Great connections. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> lots of cool imagery with the Y's. <laughs> but it's basically him and his male pet monkey. And the thing that gets interesting about the show is that his mother, who is a politician, is the next highest ranking person. So she becomes the president. And then they can't let anyone know that there's a man left because it looks really suspicious that the only man who survived is the president's son. So it's like a post-apocalyptic, crazy world with only women. But it's also interesting because there are trans men in the world who are seeking out testosterone because everything gets raided and like nobody has any food or any supplies. And so it's interesting that like they also are represented. Like one of the main characters is a trans man who is like, you know, goes into this like Amazonian women tribe and they're like, we hate men. And he goes, okay. Like, you know, and it's like, I can't help you with that. I can't help you with that. Like, (laughs) and he's like, I promise I'm not here to like, assault you i'm just trying to get food like but it's really interesting um it's dark it's upsetting it's sci-fi which i normally stay clear from um, katie only likes real murders really i don't only like real murders but yeah it's just it's really it's an interesting show i really Fine. did enjoy it so um yeah, so I think it's like ten episodes or something, and it's Fun. yeah, it's um, it's cool. So read that or do that or read the comic books. But it's uh, right. yeah, cool concept. Um, Casey said the comic books aren't quite as dark <laughs> as per the usual. Yeah. <laughs> so also Juno's best friend uh, is in it from that movie. Um, the girl who Sarah? plays huh? No, no the, the girl, girl who plays her best friend with like the blonde Michael curly Sarek hair. Is our friend, not Michael. You Sarah. Talk about Michael Sarah. Yeah, <laughs> not Mike Sirak. No, you look up Mike Sirak. So, anyways, similar um, personality though. Yeah, so but it's cool. It. Okay, so give it a watch. Well, thank Find you guys. Please do. Oh gosh, we're everywhere. Um, Instagram, Facebook, whatever. Um, email us with your requests. We will get to them at some point. I promise. Hey, I actually reformatted the request list. Ah, perfect. I went through and I tried to delete all the ones we've done, but yeah. we have so many episodes at this point that I forget. <laughs> I Sometimes forgot I'm too. like, did we do that? <gasps> like, okay, I was looking at Stephanie St. Clair's name for like a half an hour. I was staring at my computer and I'm like, did I? Because also so guys we're actually drunk so yeah sometimes so i literally like, forget whole episodes if i didn't do the research yeah then and you told me then i'm like no nope, i can't no, no idea yeah <laughs> annie oakley no idea if we've covered her yet we have not okay good um but anyways <laughs> i don't know but anyways so yeah let us know um but really the main thing we want you to do is rate and review us on apple Podcasts. that would mean the world to us Yeah, because like it's been a while it's been a while so let us know We love you. And never forget that well-behaved women know their ring size. Oh, God. Yeah, they do. I'm flying blind. (laughs) Me too. I'm like, let me try Um, it on. Yeah. (laughs) 
and they rarely make history. So goodbye. Goodbye. listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye